Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, five wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, and Susan's latest book, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at the Wise Woman University. But you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Susan. How are you this evening? I'm doing well. We're still having lovely, warm-ish weather, although it's been a bit rainy. Our last workshops of the season this past weekend, we went out and dug roots and uh, talked about uh, all kinds of different roots. It was wonderful, you know, one of those moments that you get where you know something that other people don't and they're amazed by it, right? So as I pulled back the leaf litter and they got their first glimpse of the roots of Sanguinaria canadensis. And yes, and then they knew why it's called bloodroot. 
Oh, right. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> because so those roots harvest? really look bloody. Sure. Yeah. They're startling. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of fun and uh, got a lot done. And then Sunday it rained, 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 rained. We sat around and talked about what to do in the wintertime to prevent colds and flus and Oh, how to stay healthy and what how to help kids and what to do if you have a cough or a fever and just uh, had a jolly good time. And then nice. Tara That's the awesome. Apprentice gave her um, Goddess Ally performance. She actually performed Kali for us, and that was stunning. Nice. Yeah, she was a great Kali. We've had some marvelous collies through the years. Do you know the um, the Celtic do- goddess that's of this season? How, is it, do you say her name Kalicha or um, Kali. the old one? Kali. You all say Kali letters, as well? Just... All those letters and what you say is Kali. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's so, I was just like how similar they are to how similar she is to Kali and what a um, good, yeah, yeah, represented in the Celtic tradition just differently. I mean, yeah. But she's well, yes, she like in the Hindu pantheon. She's like more Kali is more of like I mean she doesn't look so like old and um, she's more black, you know. Whereas like in the Celtic, she's much lighter looking and much older looking. Yes. Yes, but yeah, very one, cool the though. Biggest differences is that one has black skin and one has white skin, as portrayed. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the same energy and the same force, and it's presented in a way that people can identify with. Mhm. And. Uh, Mm, we made some elderberry tincture, which was a lot of fun. And we talked about echinacea and growing echinacea. And um, I especially talked about the fact that when I started studying herbal medicine in the 60s and 70s, that the anti-infective that was used was golden seal. Mm-hmm. If you had a cold, you had golden seal. If you had an infected wound, you had golden seal. Any infection. Anywhere, golden skill was what was recommended. And the in the heroic tradition, no pain, no gain. But the wise woman tradition says, no pleasure, no treasure. So I knew from the moment that I first tasted golden seal that it was not going to be a plant that I was going to be using and that I was going to love. Because it tastes really, really, really bad. And uh, how I had to search through old books written a couple of hundred years ago by the white people here in the new land with the things that they had learned. And one of the things they learned as they got out to Kansas was that there was a root there that was part of the sunflower family and related to black-eyed Susan, 
Rudbecca that was a very powerful anti-infective. In fact, some authors suggest that black-eyed Susan could be used, black-eyed Susan root could be used in the same way that echinacea root is used. Yes. The old, the old common names for it were not nice names, and so I decided to just avoid that altogether and just start calling it by its botanical name, echinacea. And it's wonderful to see how echinacea has come into um, so many people's lives um, who don't even know about plants or herbal medicine. It's just growing in their churchyard or just growing by their library. Mm-hmm. And they may not even know the name of it. And, of course, when we're studying the language of plants, one of the very, very first things that a plant tells us is how often we are to use it. And it tells us that by how close to us it grows. So the closer to people that a plant grows, the more frequently we use it. And the further away people that a plant grows, the less frequently we would use it. And golden seal grows where? Very far away from people, the deep Very woods. From people, exactly, exactly. But echinacea, you know, will will jump right into your kitchen. It seems like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I just saw someone posting like a a kind of well-known herbalist on um, Instagram and they were making a echinacea tincture and they were using the flowers and the leaves in and I didn't even see any root actually in their um, their tincture but is that I mean would it have a use at all with the do you think that the flowers and the leaves have any use at all I just of don't course, have any experience they have some use would oh, yeah. I yeah. give it to a goat who had mastitis? Absolutely not. Right. Yeah. Would I take it if I had some kind of raging infection? No way. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I got out the Echinacea tincture that I make from dried Echinacea augustifolia root that I usually let sit for a year or more before I use it. And that's what I use anytime the animals around me need any help. And I also got out for class the Echinacea tincture that I make from fresh Echinacea augustifolia that a past apprentice harvests for me. She doesn't harvest it every year. She sends it to me like every four or five years, which is perfect. Just overnights me and get a little shipment of Echinacea. Oh, my gosh, how wonderful. Um, And everybody was able to tell the difference in the tinctures between the fresh root and the dried root. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure. perennial roots protect themselves during the winter by developing poisons in rich soils, alkaloids and glycosides. The understanding we have is that you want to let perennial roots be at three years old at least, before you start using them mm-hmm. so that they have an opportunity to create enough alkaloids and glycosides. Now, are some of those constituents available in the other parts of the plant? Absolutely. I find valerian root like a sledgehammer, 
So I use valerian flower because it's so much lighter. Right? Valerian root is like, you will go to sleep now. Clonk! And valerian right. flower is, let's think about going to sleep. But when I'm finding an infection, I'm fighting. And I want to Can you have, repeat? I'm, can I repeat what? What did you just say right before that? That when I'm fighting, fighting. an infection, I'm fighting. Yeah, you're fighting. I'm fighting. Right, that infection wants to kill me or hurt me. Mm-hmm. And... We hear from callers who call in that they don't have a strong enough relationship with echinacea or another anti-infective herb that they feel safe to take it when they're fighting an infection. So they go and get antibiotics. And I want and do feel safe enough to about echinacea made from the root to use it in the worst infective situation. Yeah, I mean, I'm... Yeah, I'm proud to say I haven't taken an antibiotic since the 90s, since before. I mean, I I came to study with you like 2001, 2002, I think, and so I haven't used any antibiotics since then because of my relationship with echinacea and poke root and... Um, yeah, and yarrow. Yeah. 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 And my kids haven't either, so it's, it's, I, I'm very fortunate. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I think it's part, partly the gift of using one plant, using it as a simple and really coming to know. Um, how to use it and how to trust it. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure that what what you're saying is not, my kids and I have not been sick since the 90s. What you're saying is my kids and I have been sick and we've had infections and we've dealt with them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Fortunately, like when I had mastitis, that's what I used. But everybody was telling me you have to you have to go on antibiotics. But I had such a I mean I have such a great relationship with echinacea, and um, fortunately, you know we don't have that many occurrences where I have to use it these days. But I always have a lot of it made just in case. So exactly. Yes. If if you're going to be using echinacea, you want to know that there's a bunch sitting there for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have extra made for people that need it, too. So <laughs> We have an exciting guest tonight at 9 o'clock. Sarah Wu will be with us. I know Sarah from Costa Rica. Justine is packing up. She's heading out to Costa Rica once again for her wintertime in Costa Rica. And I met Sarah Wu through Justine and um, taught at her wonderful gathering called The Edges. Um, And she'll be telling us more about that. Um, Sarah does a lot of stuff. Um, but she 
primarily is involved with deep ecology, therapeutic ecology, planetary eclectic herbal medicine, and permaculture. Mm-hmm. So that's at 9 o'clock my time or whatever time it is at your time. Sarah Wu will be with us. Yeah, excited to hear from Sarah. <laughs> to follow her on social media and see all of the things she's up to. So it'll be a, a good interview. And I'm happy that she's wanting to talk about uh, veganism too and her thoughts on that. Yes. As it seems to be sweeping the nation or <laughs> maybe even the world, but it's really prominent where I live. Well, it, it's certainly not prominent here, especially not as we move into wintertime. Yeah. Yeah. And in I fact, say, well, in fact what, I have, what I have found, <laughs> Rebecca, in my 50 years of working with this is that if you're in a small group and a lot of people in a small group are doing something, it may seem like everybody's doing it. But if you back off a little bit, you'll see it's a tiny, tiny sliver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically um, because it's n- it's not a sustainable food choice. It's not. It can't create health or heal. It flares up and then goes away, and flares up and goes away. There have to be en- enough new people who haven't seen the damage that it does to get interested, and then they see mm-hmm. that, and then it really goes into recession. For a while, as people understand how bad it is, and then again, we have a naive population that that says, oh, let's try it. It's just that the standard American diet is so poor that I think when people transition into that, that they see radical changes at first, and then, you know, over time, it takes time for them to see that it's not the most sustainable diet, but it's just painful to watch the process after having gone through it, you know, and like seeing so many people go through it. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have a lot of callers on the line. If you have a question for Susan, make sure to press one to ask your question and we'll go to the first caller in the 718 area code. Hello. Hi. Hi, Susan. I hope you can help me. I had a um, a fall a couple of days ago down the stairs, and I landed with a tremendous thud, and I I uh, I must have damaged quite a lot because I was black and blue from the top of the thigh going down to almost the, the uh, mid midway, and I uh, I iced it, I uh, I elevated it, and it receded somewhat, but I'm left now with like a football on the top part of the side that feels like it's a hard lump, probably coagulated blood, but I'm not able to, you know, get it now less than what it is. You know, I had a, an accident quite different, but same kind of result um, in which there was like a, a hidden crevasse between two rocks in the woods and my um, leg fell down in between this. And it was narrow enough for my ankle, but my whole weight went down in there, and it really hurt my thigh. Mm-hmm. 
it actually took three people to pull me out. Fortunately, I was with other people. Uh, if I'd been alone, I might have been stuck there forever. And um, it made the same thing. It made like this kind of like hard, it wasn't so much a swelling, and it wasn't really tender or painful to the touch, but it looked really weird. Weird enough so that after six weeks when it was still there, I went to a doctor, and the doctor said, oh, yeah, that'll eventually go away. I'll tell you the truth, it has not eventually gone away. It has shrunk a lot. Mm -hmm. But there's still some stuff there, and that was years and years ago. It's not like it bothers me. But, like, what happened? Is it a muscle that tore, or, like, why is it like that? Is it important to know that? Yeah, I'd like to know why why it is that way. Uh-huh. Well, then what I would suggest is an anatomy book and an MRI. MRI, okay. But I wouldn't suggest those ordinarily because I don't think it's important to know what happened. So in other words, you still have, like you say, a lump left over anyway. Yes. Even today. Okay. I went to a doctor. The doctor said, ho-hum, no big deal. It'll go away. That'll be $300. <laughs> right. But at, at today, after after the, the, the years, would you recommend any kind of herb or something to take that would help milk it? Or, or to even help with the pain? Were you drinking nourishing herbal infusions, right? I started, yes. Wonderful. If you want to take some of the comfrey from your infusion, either the liquid or the herb, and use it as a poultice, that would definitely help. Okay, that's a good start. Okay. So that would be like like two or three times a day? or Whatever you want. Okay. And it doesn't bother you? Like the pain is not there? It's just a lump? Like There's no pain at all. Okay. I could just look forward to that. Okay. So we'll all try. right. Yeah. Great. Okay, green blessings. Good night. The next caller is coming from the 216 area code. Hello? Hi. Can you hear me? Hi. Yeah. Um, my name is Jamie. I'm just calling you, Susan, because I've been struggling with Hashimoto's for about three years, and I've tried different things. I've tried seaweed, I've tried nettle, I've tried, you know, taking thyroid medication, um, all kinds of things. And I just got this rash anyway around my mouth. And it's really uncomfortable. You say that you're struggling with Hashimoto's. Yes. Could you tell me a little more about what you mean, like you're struggling to change your thyroid? Is that what you mean? Yes, I just I want it to be healthy again is what I'm hoping. Um, and the naturopath I started seeing has led me to believe that that's possible. But then now I'm starting to think that he just wants me to take uh, the, you know, pills that they have basically. Because every time I have a problem, he says, well, take this, this, and this. But he doesn't really say why. And I just have told him from the beginning I wanted to work with simple herbs. So I feel like, okay, I just got this rash on my mouth, and I just want to know, 
oh, do I drink more nettle or, oh, do I drink comfort? You know, like what, what simple stuff can I work with that will help me with this versus some kind of topical steroid? So first, first of all, what I would like to suggest is two things that might be very useful for you. In my book, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, there is a specific section devoted to the thyroid. Okay. All right. So um, if the thyroid is attacked by the immune system, then the diagnosis is Hashimoto's. If there Uh is not enough thyroid hormone being produced, or Graves, if there is too much. It Uh is possible to have both simultaneously, and it is possible for one to turn into another. Dr. Ryan Drum says these changes in the thyroid are a whole body attempt to enforce slowing down of activity. Okay. So basically slow down, rest more. Slow down, correct. Right. Because it sounds to me when you say I'm fighting Hashimoto's, it doesn't sound like you're fighting Hashimoto's. It sounds like you're fighting yourself. In a way, I do feel that way because I feel like there's no end to it, and I feel good most of the time, but then sometimes uh-huh. stuff like this will happen where I'll get this random rash on the side of my mouth that looks horrendous, you know, at least to me. And, and do you think that's hot. from Hashimoto's? Um, my doctor says it's hormonal, and so I think that because the thyroid, when it's supposedly compromised, it apparently affects so many of our hormones that... That's why I was thinking, well, okay, maybe I'm, and I, I am think, getting close to my I do my not think so cycle, at all, and I think when your doctor says hormonal, they mean sexual hormones. Sexual hormones, okay, so. I do not think there's any connection. I could be wrong, but I do not no. think there's any connection. Yeah, I mean, when you said that, I was like, well, that seems like a pretty vague response to me. I had, par- I mean, it was, a, it was diagnosed paraoral dermatitis when I was pregnant with my daughter, and I had found out, that's when I first found out I had any thyroid issues was seven years ago. So I was on synthetic medication, and then I switched to Natrosoid. And then, like, I just took myself off of everything completely because I felt like I was still having the same symptoms. So what was the point of taking the medication? And then mm-hmm. I started taking, or, or not taking, but I started consuming seaweed. And when they tested my TSH, it elevated really high. And so what, they were saying that what I seaweed were you taking and how much? Um, I was I had bladderwrack and I was doing infusions of one ounce. Uh huh. Like the nurse. Ryan Drum says no more than five grams of fucus on a daily basis. So probably I should do like some kind of powdered one that I could measure or something and mix it into something. Well, an ounce is 30 grams. Oh, wow. So I was having, but I didn't do it daily. So, so if you make a quart of fucus with an ounce and you drink it over the course of a week, that's about the right amount. Oh, my gosh. I knew it. I had a feeling I was just having too much because when the doctor said, no, you need to avoid it altogether, I was like, but I was feeling amazing on the seaweed, man. 
and I didn't want to stop taking it. So I was surprised to see my TSH so high, and it made me in tears because I was just like, what? I thought this was it. I was feeling amazing, but apparently it wasn't that. So now I know do it, I'm going to do it again, but this time just have a court over the span of a week and just have a little bit every day. Exactly. And do you think so that's why I'm suggesting happening? new menopause years. All this stuff I'm telling you is written down right here. Okay. So that's All right. there's a whole section about thyroid. So and as far as this Dr. Goes, Ryan Drum, who I just mentioned, did a teleseminar uh-huh. with me a couple years back and I believe the recording of it is available at um our sales site at wisewomanbookshop.com. I think yes, it's I pretty inexpensive. That, actually. And he's I quite it, And I must have overlooked the amount to take, and I just assumed for some reason it was one ounce, and, and now I know it's not. So I will definitely yeah. revisit that seminar and listen to that and see what right. I can incorporate. Have you heard of the medical medium um, man? He suggests that drinking How celery. How can you not hear f- about him? What? I just barely heard about him, maybe because I don't really do, you know, media and stuff like that. And apparently, well, a friend of me of mine sent me a link, and he just, she just said that probably I have the Epstein Barr virus because ninety percent of people with Hashimoto's actually have this other virus that can. Actually, ninety-five percent of all people have Epstein Barr. And that's what I know too. So I was like, well, are you saying that? The people who have Hashimoto's have an active virus in us where it's not, you know, inactive and that we need to maybe eradicate this virus from our thyroid somehow if it's burrowed itself within the organ or the gland, I mean. So, I mean, that's, I started taking, I mean, I started ingesting, I hate saying that, I know you don't like that. Um, what is what is a virus? What is a virus? Uh, the Epstein, well, I'm what not really is sure. a virus? A pathogen, like that enters. And we can say it's a pathogen. How big is a virus? Um, at, you know, tiny. I don't know. Microscopic. Bigger or smaller than a cell? Smaller, I would say. Yes, but I'm not sure. Very, very much smaller. Bigger or smaller than the DNA in the in your cell's nucleus? Smaller. Correct. So viruses don't burrow. Okay. So that's incorrect. Right? There's no way that a virus can burrow. It's not big enough to burrow. Okay. What a virus does is it goes to your cell, which is protected on the outside, and it slips in past the guardians. And it goes to the DNA, and it says, make me. And that's what all viruses do. So I need to somehow protect the thyroid more. And he suggests eating foods like artichokes and celery juice on a daily basis and things like that. Of course he says celery juice. He says celery <laughs> juice for everything. <laughs> what? I know. And that's why I didn't jump on Come that on. Like, first of all. What? Seems like a lot I'm of telling work. you, there's a core, there's a bunch of pages in my book where you can actually read information. Yeah, I'm gonna get that. Ryan Drum sure. and I did a seminar, which you can listen to. And uh, before we say goodbye, I just want to remind you that any raw cabbage family plant contributes to hypothyroidism. I yeah, 
it's critically important if you're dealing with thyroid issues to avoid raw food and avoid juices. Okay. So not only would I say don't drink celery juice, I would say don't drink any juice, any green juice of any kind. Even aloe vera juice? Especially aloe vera juice, which is a carcinogen and is against the law in California. See? Oh my gosh, I just need to stop going to the doctor. I'm just going to nourish my wholeness and appreciate where I'm at and incorporate my seaweed back in my life and then see what happens from there. Cause I Sounds good. Green blessings. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, the next caller is coming from 845 area code. Hey, this is Tatiana. Good evening, Susie. Good evening, Tatiana. Um, My journey with uh, my high blood pressure and uh, one heart attack that I didn't feel is that I was put on a medication, and in one week, I really feel it made me sick. And last week I talked with you, and I I bought the Hawthorne um, tincture, and I noticed there are two different Hawthorne tinctures. At um, I bought them both at um, Mother Earth. One is the berries, and one is berries, flower, and leaf, which is Gaia or Gaia or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Gaia doesn't have alcohol in it. Which means it's not a tincture. Oh. It's not a tincture unless it's based in alcohol. Oh. So what is it? It's kind of like somebody inviting you to the movie and you get there and it's a bunch of pictures hanging on the wall. Well, well, the person who sold it to me, he said this is much more um, concentrated. It's 667 milligrams. And the other one is only 300 and something. Well, I bought them both. Mm-hmm. It's fine. They're both fine. It's not a problem. But when you say there's no alcohol in it, what is it extracted into? Yeah, it's it's written here. Oh, just a moment. Um, it's, um, wait a minute, vegetable glycerin and water. Mm-hmm. Vegetable glycerin is very, very sweet, and it's ideal for um, capturing hormonal aspects of plants. My friend Rena Neesom, who um, runs a clinic in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, called the Wild Rose Clinic, one of her favorite remedies is the leaf buds of wild roses put up in glycerin. And she says it's just ideal for any kind of reproductive hormone difficulty. So I don't see that there's any problem um, with it, except that glycerides, it's not a tincture, it's a glyceride. Glycerides don't stay good for very long, a year or two at most, whereas tinctures are good for up to 100 years. Yeah, well, of course, um, 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 taking it three or four times a day for 
my blood pressure would finish it in uh, in in a month. Not sure that taking it three or four times a day is necessary. Oh, so you would suggest only twice or what? Twice am, a day is absolutely plenty. There's about 40 dropper falls in a one-ounce yeah. bottle. If mm-hmm. you take a dropper full twice a day, then you have three weeks' worth in one bottle. People really scare me. They told, you know, they keep telling me that for high blood pressure, the medication is non-negotiable and that I'm crazy. But, uh, you know, I, I, I never loved and nor responded well to medication, and this medication I'm taking is already making me dizzy and makes my shingle pain stronger, and I respond badly to vibrations, which means that my nervous system is, you know, I am in a car, I feel like, you know, like it's a high earthquake, and if I hear loud noises, they they hit me in the head, like my poor baby, Dachshund, I mean, our, he's my daughter's, but uh, anyway, he's in the car and he barks because he needs to protect us. You you can't help that. And it's like, it hits me like a hammer in the head. Uh, So I want to get off it. And what my scare is, is that my doctor when she hears that I don't want to take the medication, she doesn't want to work with me, which I understand from her point of view. But my point of view is I am left after a heart attack and high blood pressure uh, with um, insecurity as to how long it will take for me to correct these both conditions. Um. Most people find that consistent use of blood pressure lowering herbs brings their blood pressure to within a normal range in six to eight weeks. <laughs> there is no reason why you cannot take the drug and the herb at the same time. Mm-hmm. It, you know, first time I came to you, I, I was about the pain of shingles. So if I take something that, first of all, hurts me and, you know, will help, help me maybe in half a year, I don't have the staying power to... to totally uh, ad- you. Yeah, to, Absolutely. to admit the side and, effects. And if you don't want to take the drug, I understand. What I'm saying is that your blood pressure was very, very high, as I recall, 178 over something. Yeah, mm-hmm. occasionally. Mm-hmm doesn't stay there all the time. It does come down, Good. but not to normal. Do you have a, a a cuff that you can take your own blood pressure? Yes, I do that. Yeah, I do it. Good. Good. So what would you say that, I, that it is normally? Well, I was told, you know, I even definition of, of, you of had what's a, normal. You yeah, I was told that. And I'm asking you from your measurements what you're your blood pressure is not what you've been told, but what you're seeing. Ah, uh, what I see. Well, you know, I'm checking it, and I'm told that I have high blood pressure. Anything after 130 is high blood pressure. My friend who has 150, she's with high blood pressure medication, and actually, she scared me to death. So I took the first pill after she. So, are you going to tell me what you see when you look at your blood pressure? 
I see anything between 139 to uh, 189 after I went and went up and down the stairs That's very, very high. Slow. That's very yeah. high. That yes. can be dangerous. Yeah. That's why I'm scared. Yeah. Well, being scared isn't useful. But, <laughs> but it is definitely something that you will be healthier and live longer if you deal with, I hear that you are very unhappy with the drug, but do you think that you could take the drug for three weeks while you're giving the herbs a chance to work in your body? Oh, yes, I'm doing that. I'm taking both. I already took it for two weeks, and I'll see the doctor in three days, and uh, uh, I, I you know, I'm afraid she's going to change the drug because maybe according to her ideas, this is not working because my uh, whatever is not going down. My blood pressure is not going down. It's the same it was before. But you're telling me you don't like the drug anyhow, so wouldn't it be good if she did change it? <sighs> there are a great many different drugs affect blood pressure. And they yeah. act in very different ways. Yes, and this one got me dizzy. And uh, anyway, uh, every every drug. I'm just. I'm, I'm not sure why you're afraid she might change the drug. Because then I'll get some other side effects, and and that one, you know, I I accept. So you'd rather I, stay with the side effects you have. A necessary evil, yeah. I'm trying, like, to get, okay, so I'll take it. Okay, but how do you know that a different drug will give you worse side effects? Uh, no, it can be different, not necessarily worse. I'm already in pretty bad condition. <laughs> so, yeah, again, like, I don't know. I'm not there. I'm not the one who's, you know, working with you um, uh, on that ongoing thing, but... What I do know is that there are a variety of different drugs that act yes. in different ways in the body to help reduce blood pressure, some by increasing urination, diuretic drugs, some by blocking certain substances like beta blockers, and each one um, has a different effect, of course, and sometimes People are given a poly pill, which is a pill with more than one drug in it. Oh, my God. I, I like only one herb at a time, so I'm telling you the drug that's You know what drugs you are taking? Mm-hmm. I'm not taking anything. Before this one, I never took anything. I didn't take I'm talking about this drug right now. Do you know what oh, it is? Oh, the name of it is Lysine, Lysinopril. It's called lisinopril. And have you looked it up to find out what it is and what it does? Yeah. Yes. Uh, it comes with a story that makes your hair stand. I mean, mine, I should say. <laughs> yeah. It ha- like like uh, every every drug comes with a, a history of terrible things that can happen to you uh, if you take it. Um, yeah, that wasn't aunt, what I was asking. Yeah. I was asking if you had looked at some other resources like um, Worst Pills, Best Pills, or um, an index of drugs to find out what type of drug it is. 
No, I didn't because I'm totally not familiar. For me, it's like going to Jupiter, you know. It's 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 like I'm such a stranger to it. I, I was married to a doctor, but I never entered the the country of, of drugs in any way. Not good drugs, not bad drugs. I, and I, I was forced you, to take antibiotics. I am suggesting all of us, and certainly it's something that I uh, do my best to do, is if I am going to ingest anything, whether it's a food, a beverage, or a medicine, then I find out what I can about it. Yeah, well, I read three pages about it, and I thought that that's more than enough. <laughs> I, I am sure it's insufficient. I, I well, I think you have good Hawthorne there, and I think you're doing good work, and I look forward to talking to you the next time you call. Yeah, that's what I expected to hear from you, that I'll keep going. Thank you. All right. You take care now. Thanks. Bye-bye. The next caller is coming from the 503 area code. Hello. Hi. My name is Julia. Hi, Julia. Hi. Okay, so um, my condition it sounds a little bit like the other the woman who just called in, but I have um, in in March I had some kind of an episode. I think it was GERD related. Um, I since went on a GERD diet, and um, I've eliminated all of those symptoms. But when I, I thought it was I was having a heart attack because it was shortness of breath, and I went into the emergency room, and they found out my, my pulse was 38. So they diagnosed me as having bigeminy, which is extra heartbeat. So after echocardiogram and 24-hour monitoring and um, uh, the perfusion stress test and all of these things, um, they they found out that I have uh, 143,000 incidents of or what what was it? No, it was uh, it was 80% of of my heartbeats in a 24-hour period are by Gemini. And so with all of that, they want you to treat it because that's a high incident. Lots of people are in by Gemini. It's common. You don't know you have it. But the telltale sign is, is constant um, heart um, pulse rate of like 38, 37, 33, uh, which is half of what, you know, it really truly is because of these extra PVCs. So, um, you know, they try to treat I, it first. I'm, I'm sorry. I am so lost. I don't understand how extra heartbeats wind up being less. Right. I don't either. I honestly don't. But that is okay. Kind All of right. The so we're in the hallmark. same uh, boat together. Yeah. No the, problem. The only way I can they they explained it to me in a, in a way that it it that that extra heartbeat that happens after your big heartbeat kind of robs the big heartbeat of its oomph. That's a, that's in layman's terms, and so it shows up okay. half of of what it it is. So anyway, I um, they gave me beta. They like to treat it with drugs. So first they put me on beta blockers. Now all of this to say, what okay, amazing, I, what amazing yeah. medical professionals! They went to the pharmacy, filled the <laughs> prescription for you, and come to your house twice a day to give you a pill. Right. Is that what they and do? I, I, Is well, that what they do? That's what happens. They fill the prescription and they come to your house and give you pills. Uh, so they prescribe. Are you me listening to me? Are we having a discussion here? I want you to answer me, please. 
Yeah, they no, they prescribed me beta blockers. That's correct. They did not put you on anything. You went to the pharmacy, you fulfilled the prescription, and you are taking it. Am I wrong? Well, I'm not taking it. Okay. So I I took it. They like suggested a, a days and gave and then... you a prescription for, but they, but nobody puts anybody else on anything. I un- I understand what you're saying. Okay. So, so they suggested um, drugs which you didn't buy and aren't taking. Right, I I didn't go. On. I I tried them for a, a couple days and they made me feel terrible. So, um, also between the time of March and June, I I lost thirty five pounds because I had gained weight. So I went on a diet, lost thirty five pounds. Or actually, I just ate more healthy. That's what I did, and. Um, the things that caused by Jiminy, from what the research that I've been able to to um, look up and what the doctors have said, you know, things like over-exercise, well, that's not my problem, um, stress, I am wrapped very tight, and so I have a stressful job, I manage about 20 people, and when I get home, I have no reserve left, I keep everything together at work, and then, so I, I'm, you know, that is stressful. Um, so I started doing yoga and, and meditating. And then um, the other thing is caffeine and alcohol can contribute, so I cut both of those things out. But I'm still in Bigeminy and have been, you know, since March um, almost all the time. And I do take my blood pressure at home. Um, I have a machine, and it also gives me my pulse. So I, I know... Um, and I'm wearing an Apple Watch, so I know what my pulse is, and I can always see that it's 37, 38, 39. So I guess my question is, and, and so the only curative for this is an ablation. And if you don't treat it, the the, the studies have shown it's a risk of your of of heart failure. So it wearing out, it affecting your left ventricle, that kind of thing. So that's their other thing that they do is ablation. So I've so I'm coming, I want to talk to you about maybe herbal things that would affect um, this bigeminy con- condition. I'm I not am sure taking there's the any herbs that would infusion. directly affect okay. that, but I do know that Hawthorne, which we were talking about before, yeah. increases the effectiveness of the heart muscle. Okay. This... Um, this is an electrical problem. I, I don't have a structural issue with my heart. It's it's electrical in nature. This is the way they describe it. I thought but you said that the that, long-term problem was that your heart would wear out. Is that electrical? Well, it gives, the way I understand is because it's working overtime or there are more heartbeats. Yeah, I would I would say it, it's an, bigeminy is an electrical condition, but I it does it does start to affect the left ventricle. Is the way I that's what I'm it. saying. So I guess thorn yeah. increases the heart's effective pumping action. Okay. And so, how how much hawthorn, or what do you recommend? Hawthorn is the equivalent of applesauce. Okay, so you can have uh, the hawthorn tree is closely related to apples, cherries, peaches, plums. Okay, so it's used as a food. 
Oh, okay. A good, you know, uh, some people like to make an infusion of the berries, an infusion of the leaves and flowers. Some people like to take a tincture of it. It's all good. I personally take a dropper full or two of Hawthorne tincture on a daily basis to ensure okay. the longevity and good action of my heart. And I know that my blood pressure usually runs about 110 over 70. Okay. So that's well, a pretty I, good blood pressure. Especially for yeah, somebody in their good. middle 70s. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful to Hawthorne to help helping my heart stay mm-hmm. healthy for as long a time as possible. So... My story is a little bit different than your doctor's story. Mm-hmm. Your doctor's story is you have a condition. The condition is basically untreatable. But it's so wrong that we're going to treat it anyhow. And it's wrong because it might in the future cause some difficulty with your heart. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is let's let's just... Forget about that altogether and concentrate on making your heart healthy. Mm-hmm. It may be that that's just the way you are. Okay. And that you've had these extra heartbeats and a, you know, the heart rate in the 30s for a while. Is that possible? No, because um, I mean I the no, it just it started in March because I go in to the doctor um, and I ask for my heart. I, I now I have my own monitor, but when I got my blood mm-hmm. pressure, um, it's always been uh, my my heart rate has been normal. My your heart rate has always been six seventy something like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, do you think that that these extra heartbeats are curable? Well, I have no idea, Susan. I mean, really. All I all I know is, you know, the all, the research has been done with this condition. And the research that's, is that's is what curable I know. or is it curable? It it is curative. The cure, ablation is curative. Yeah, and the drugs were, you know, just not. They were terrible. It did help but it made me feel like I couldn't even put one foot in front of the other. It was just an untenable life. <laughs> so yes. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. So, the, yeah. But I, you know, I am wondering, you know, so uh, I am taking the herbal, nourishing herbal infusions today with, with clover. Yeah, I am doing that. And I can start taking Hawthorne regularly. Yeah. I'm still, you know, eating healthily, um, you know, and trying to figure Although out. I, I never know anymore what people mean when they say they're eating healthy. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I know. Well, I, I eat lots of veg- fresh vegetables and um, cooked and, um, and, and, you know, beans and fish and that kind of thing. That's my diet. I don't eat a lot of sugars and. Fast. Right. Right. Um, yeah. 
So you eat a broad whole foods diet. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, anyway, I'm just wondering, you know, if there was so the, what is the ablation ablate? And ablation removes things. Well, they go in and they cauterize that area with radio frequencies, the way I understand it. They cauterize that area of the ventricle that's firing those extra heartbeats. And that's what they do. And so. Sounds like um, it's low intervention surgery. It is. It is. It's considered low risk. It's outpatient. You know, it it Mm -hmm. is. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, anytime you talk about them doing something to your heart, I you, know, you get anxious. Um, and I, you know, I do try to to handle you know, treat things without drugs first um, because I don't want to be on the drug train, as I told my my cardiologist. Once that starts, it's kind of hard to get off. So that's not what I see. Okay. I see well, I'm interested a great many see, people yeah. who take a drug to deal with a specific issue and take the herbs, and once the herbs start to take effect, they stop taking the drug. Okay. Like the woman that I was talking to just before you with that uncorrected blood pressure of 178 over, what, 110 or something. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, that's so, very high. Yeah, drug doesn't put her on a drug train. It prevents her from dying while the Hawthorne right. gets to work. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I totally hear what you're saying. I understand that that I understand that the drug that you gave yeah. the drug a try and that it made you feel awful and you don't want to take it and I completely support you in that. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, but again, what to, to my mind, the difference between being on the drug train and just using drugs is that we take full responsibility for our choice in using drugs, and we do not say that somebody put me on something. Right. Yeah. As soon as somebody yeah, yeah. puts you on something, that's the train right there that you've been put on. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's keep our power and say I've chosen to take a drug or they gave a prescription for the drug and I took it once and I hated it mm-hmm. and I'll never take it again. And that's all good. No problem. Or I took it and it's working and hooray. Yeah. All It all works. You know, we're all have different needs and different times in different places. So it sounds to me like one of the things that you're doing right now is preparing yourself for the ablation. Right. Yeah. And nourishing herbal infusions and Hawthorne are great ways to prepare. Okay. That's good. Okay. All right. And I I heard, I heard her talking about the the tincture versus these the flower thing. Is there any difference well, in your mind? Well, it wasn't a tincture versus something, she got a tincture of berries and then she got a glyceride of the flowers and leaves. All parts of the hawthorn are usable. I prefer the berries just because I like the red color and I like the taste of them. And I don't especially like things that are astringent or tannic. I'm not a tea drinker or a coffee drinker because of that. 
and the leaves and flowers are more tannic and more astringent. But some people really like that. Okay. And they object to the fruit because it's fruity. Oh, okay. Right. So it's interesting that she got both of them, and maybe she'll find that she has a preference for one over the other. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your time. You are welcome. Green blessings. Good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Sorry about that. It's okay. Uh, screen was <laughs> shifting rather quickly there. <laughs> All right. Uh, caller is coming from the 847 area code. Hello. Hello. Hey. Oh, my question tonight is regarding my daughter. She is three. She'll be four next month. And we have a rooster situation, which is that we have too many roosters on the farm, and we're going to give death to one of the roosters in the next few days. And she knows we're doing it, and she's pretty excited about it. And my wife and I have been talking about whether it would be appropriate for her, my daughter, that is, to be part of the ceremony and to be there with us while we give the rooster death. And uh, we thought... <laughs> she wants to be with. Of course she does she want wants to. Be. to. Why, why would you deny her? Well, because she's never seen blood squirting out of a throat before. And it might give her nightmares or freak her out. I don't know. You know what... What freaks most people out is not the sight of blood, but the feelings of the people around them. Are you going to be freaked out? No. Then she won't be. She's going to take her cue from you. All right. So you're going to put two nails in a stump and put the rooster's neck between the nails and chop the head off. Is that your plan? No, usually I actually just hold them between my lap and pull it. Hold it in your lap, uh uh-huh, and use a knife to cut the throat. Yep. Do you cut the whole head right off? No, we just slit the throat in the pan. Uh Uh-huh, and do you collect the blood? Um, Typically, I just do it under a tree Mm -hmm. and let it... We usually collect the blood into a half bucket of uh, water. The water, of course, keeps the blood from coagulating. And then we use that as a special fertilizer for plants that need special attention. All right, yeah. And that's something that she could participate with. Of course, yeah. So then it doesn't become blood spurting out everywhere, but a precious resource that's going to be used. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. Uh, we've been. I mean, I've been asking a few, you know, different elders that I respect their opinions, and I've gotten some different answers. Um, but I just, I was really value your opinion, and I thought you might have a good answer. Thank you. And uh, yeah, you know, and the other thing is, uh, really, if you have too many roosters, why not give death to more than one? They only get more aggressive. Right. 
Yeah, at the moment we have three roosters as well as a male duck. So it's a little too many males and one coop. Yeah, yeah. It, it Things become unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll really get in the roosters because it's me. <laughs> And remember that there are four places in the ceremony of giving death. The one who holds the knife, the one who holds the animal, the one who holds the space, sacred, and the one who walks in the woods. And there doesn't have to be an actual person walking in the woods, but the one who walks in the woods holds for all of us that part that says we wish that there didn't ever have to be death. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, thank you. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. Okay. The next caller is coming from the 828 area code. Hello, Susan. This is Moretta. Hey, Moretta. How are you doing? Did you stay away from the fall calls and you're so healthy? You know, I'm calling you because I um, caught a really uh, very bad cough on Wednesday. And uh, on Sunday, my shoulder went, uh, I got a frozen shoulder. And uh, Wednesday, because I got a cold, I stopped swimming so for four or five days, I did not swim for the first time in six months. Otherwise, I swim every day for an hour. And then I got this this uh, frozen shoulder, which is so painful. And I've taken um, hemp extract, <clears throat> 3,000. And, you know, 3,000, you know, that is, and still the pain is so intense. Three thousand what? Uh, Three thousand uh, mg's. Of what? I missed what the substance. Oh yeah, of of hemp, of um, CBD. Oh, I understand. Okay. Yeah, I put it both on the skin, on the shoulder. You know, it's sort of like you know, I've had it before, and uh, four or five years ago, and. I went to a doctor, and she injected Novocaine and all this in the whole thing, like 10 injections in it. And he says, now you go home and you just work it for the whole day, swing it around and so forth, and tomorrow it'll be sore, but the frozenness is going to be gone, and the soreness will be gone. Did you ever hear that? Yes. Well, I did, I did it once, and, and it was successful. Yes. I'm just, yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah it, has, it has to be moved, and when you're in too much pain to move it, then then you're in too much pain to move it. Yeah, that's that. You completely flip out. You know, it's just the, the the way the nerve can just lash at you. You know, it's like amazing. Isn't it though? Golly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's uh, heavy duty. You know, and I and I kind of knew it. You know, like. The day before, and for months, you know, I've been careful to put a, 
wetsuit on, you know, to keep my shoulders warm and, you know, all that kind of thing. And also being aware of that I need to really stretch them and, you know, they're tight, they're tight. And by yeah. then it just, it just came right in, you know. And wow. That was, you, yeah. uh, and you um, associated with not swimming or you couldn't swim because of it? No, I couldn't swim because of it. Okay. And I stopped swimming for five days because I got this terrific cough. So I thought, I better not go swimming with this cough. Well, then I got this frozen shoulder on, on Saturday, you know, on Sunday night, last night. And I was just like, wow, what a combination with this. Thanks God I just got out of it with my knee. My knee feels great. I don't know if you remember that. I was during Me the your shoulder hurts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just sort of like falling apart, and you fix one part, and then you go to the next part, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, thanks a lot. I haven't had a cold in 20 years. So it could have been a little extreme that one hour every day is swimming. It could have been. Yeah. And yeah. also I had to drive there and drive back, you know, to get there and get back and all that. <clears throat> you know, anytime you change your routine and you kind of get away from your own gardens and your own plants and you sort of have to drive somewhere and get in some other pool somewhere far away, <clears throat> there's a lot of healing gets lost right there. The the water is great, but the leaving your place is, you know, I always feel that that's where everything is. It's so true. <laughs> yeah. It's so, a, there's, there's certainly so, something that we know about doing the same exercise every day, which is that it leads very, very quickly to injuries and the body shutting down, which is exactly what your body did. Yeah. Yeah, so Usually, yeah. you know, better to go and swim a mile twice a week. Better. And then do other exercises. Exactly. Like a bicycle or something. Yeah. Do you think that's wise with that knee, which is just like humming perfectly happy right now? I'm so glad to hear that. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've six months of, in, you know, Bone broth, bone broth three times a day, you know, waking up with it, going to bed with it, you know, and and swimming. So it it did work for the knee. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm really happy about that. What do you think about this pain? And what do you think, is there anything I could take that would help? California poppy. No kidding. It contains many of the same things that regular poppy does, but without the constituents that are addictive. And that's not something, you know? There's two different pains in the brain, right? The cannabinoid pain system and the opioid pain system. And what you're saying is pretty clear is that... Working through the cannabinoid pain system is not diminishing your pain. 
So then we need to go to the opioid pain system. And unfortunately, the opioids are highly addictive, which is why we don't start there. But California poppy is not addictive, so it's the first place to start. California poppy. Yep. And you think uh, I can find it in tincture? You can, yes. Yes. It's an item of commerce. Well, that's what I'll do, because I thought of this uh, CBD as the end all for pain. And I was very, very disappointed when it didn't do it. It also sounds like there might be some nerve impingement, and you might think about using some hypericum tincture and or some hypericum oil. Oh, I see. Yeah, it does, sound, it does feel like it. Yeah, it, really it does, does feel like that. It <clears throat> does feel like it. Well, yeah. thank you so much for your time. and Love you, you, Maretta. I yeah. want to see you abundantly well in <laughs> I call you here for 40 years. <laughs> I, read all the, I do read all your books, and I do everything. I don't. I'm not lazy about this. I work as I am. Uh, you're wonderfully proactive yeah. in taking care of yourself. Very involved. Thank you very much. Uh, lots of love. Good night. Lots Good, Good night. We have one more caller with their hand raised. So if you have a question for Susan, please raise your hand to ask it. And the next okay. caller is coming from the three. We have, what, about 15 more minutes before our guest? Yes, about 15 Hello? Minutes. Hi. 16. Hello? Hi. What's up tonight? Hi. How are you, Susan? Uh, my name's Carol, and I'm a longtime follower. And I just want to tell you that Listening to you talk to all these people answers 99% of everything I even want to talk, think about. So just listening to you is brilliant. And it attests to your recipe on health because I'm amazed that your brand is so on too. I have one question today. All right. All right. Can you explain to me the difference between a dual infused tincture versus a so it's um, a dual, it's got like they boil, they do the turkey tail and boil it, and strain out their tincture and then use that stuff and then boil that down. And I'm trying to understand this, this dual infused tincture. Turkey tail mushrooms, like many mushrooms, have some constituents that are alcohol soluble and some constituents that are water soluble. So what some people will do is take the turkey tail mushroom and boil it in water, thus extracting the water-soluble constituents. And they will usually reduce that down so that it's little and then tincture the turkey tail with that water. Occasionally, people will reserve the water, tincture the turkey tail to get the alcohol-soluble components, and then combine the water with the tincture. So that's the dual. You have extracted water-soluble components and that you've extracted alcohol-soluble components. I use 100-proof vodka, which is half alcohol and half water, and so most of the time I am getting all of the constituents, both water and alcohol constituents by virtue of my choice of menstruum. Do you blend that turkey tail into a powder or not? I don't think that's grand, but I'm an old school. I'm 
talk to me about that? To just Turkey chop it up tail, like, like a normal herb, or do you want to blend it up like they say, or like I've heard herb. on? I know it's not. So talk. Not an herb. It's a I mushroom, hear. and it's a shelf okay. fungus. And shelf funguses tend to be the hardest of all mushrooms. So okay. I don't know how fresh your turkey tail is. If you're oh, in the I'm woods just, and you see a flush of turkey yes. tail, and it's really just yeah. a few days old, then nothing is needed because it's as fresh and as pliable as a mushroom from the supermarket. But it's a okay. thin mushroom, and so it very rapidly gets woody and tough. And people will often dry it and grind it when it has gotten woody and tough because otherwise... It's very difficult to prepare it to get any medicine out of it. Okay. Is that there is, there is yet another aspect of the turkey tail, and that is the mycelium. The mycelium of the mushroom is similar to the root of the plant, but only similar, really not the same. Because the mycelium is actually the plant, and the mushroom is like the apple. It's just a fruiting body. Right. So Paul Stammy, Mr. Mushroom, um, believes that the mycelium is more effective and more medicinal than the mushroom. And that's what he uses, is turkey tail mycelium. Oh, my gosh. So that is that the part under the bark or right at? Is that the, like the brain of it, when you it, get that? It's the you, part under the bark, and but of course he grows it right okay. on oat straw so that he has access to it very very easily. Oh, that just sounds glorious. Right, and that's available through Fungi Perfecti if you're interested. He has both just very very interesting tail mixed with other mushrooms. But he does a lot of very interesting work, and I would also recommend um, checking out his website or any other things. It's S-T-A-M-E-T-E-S, Stamets. As I have through your other podcasts. So I do have a nice, sweet harvest, and and I, the first year, and I've been working with wildcrafting for – since your first book was written, actually, I called a couple of weeks, months ago, but I cannot believe how this this mushroom is the first mushroom, and now I'm so overly attracted to it, and it's the vibration of it has excited me, and just the reach. I, I mean, it's really. I'm. My question was just about grinding it, Susan. I don't want to take up your time too much, but do I do? Should I powder it once I dry it? If it's hard and dry, it you might want to grind it. I did dry it. I do dry it on a screen with my dehydrators. And not I would too never terrible, dry a plant that I'm going to turn into a medicine, unless I'm making okay, infusion. Okay, I know that that's a good idea. So we do the tincture with the mushrooms. The same way we do the herbs, fresh. That's fresh, fresh, fresh. Oh, I. Thank. That's what we. Well, I should ask that to begin with, because I was so down with that thought, and I knew that was your answer, but I, you know, went ahead and listened to all this YouTube crap. 
So thank you so much for your time, Susan. You are welcome. But now that it's dried, you might need to grind it up. And then, then it would be uh, good enough to tincture it, or should I just make it into mead? Or I mean, I'm just saying, it's so plentiful. It's so wonderful. I'm so attracted to it. I just, like, I mean, what? I'm always why would you? Why do you want the tincture? I want the medicine. I, I want to. So you um, have, a, I, I, have a diagnosis of breast cancer? No, but I help a lot of people. I, I've been a midwife for 30 years. and Okay, so you know other people who have that diagnosis. Usually if somebody has a diagnosis, they're better off buying it because you really won't be able to supply the amount they need. Okay. Somebody okay, actually I'm has a diagnosis, they basically need to be taking that for the rest of their lives. What about people with Epstein-Barr or mono? I, I like these compromised immune system situations. I don't think of turkey tail as being an immune system helper. All right. I would I would think of astragalus. Okay. I would think of the nourishing herbal infusions. I, oh, and may I please interject this one thing? I live here in Nashville, and, and one of my children is in the top forty of country music. I have three bus tours. Drinking nettle infusions every day. There's ten people on four, three or four buses that are on those nettle infusions every day, and then they can talk to me about anything else they want to. But if you're doing that for a week or two or three, and then let's talk about what you have to say. I will tell you that you've you've got a far-reaching influence, and I appreciate you very much. You are welcome. Green blessings. (laughs) Green blessings. Good night. Good night, Susan. The next caller is coming from the 917 area code. And while we're waiting for that caller, I just want to Mm -hmm. mention that um, there has, I just learned that there has been a super bloom of California poppies this year. Mm hmm. California. In California, yeah. So it's a good year. Apparently, they're not allowed to harvest the California poppies for medicine in California, though, because it's the state flower. It's illegal. Is what I've been told. (laughs) Not to say that people don't do it anyway. It's illegal to drive over the speed limit, too. Yeah, true. I, I just certainly that would that not was... go out, you know, and harvest enough to sell commercially, but I would not hesitate to uh, pick some flowers for my Yeah, own. you don't need that much to make a, a tincture. Exactly. And what better time than when there's a super bloom, when there's lots and lots and lots. Yeah, I saw some pictures. It was really incredible. Um, I think I'm on now. I think you, you are. are. Hi. Okay. Hi, Susan. Um, this is Jesse. I'm calling from Beacon, New York, just down river from you. Um, I seem to have a little trouble making oil, herbal oils. Um, in the past, I've made like um, a lot of plantain oil, sometimes comfrey oil, and I seem to get like mold a lot when I'm making these. 
Mm-hmm. And I have some going right now, and I think um, I've avoided that problem this time, but it kind of smells terrible. <laughs> so I'm wondering if there's something I'm doing wrong. Plantain oil, good quality plantain infused oil, should smell like an Italian deli. Okay. It should smell like um, old cheese and, you know, preserved meat, that kind of Flamanda smell. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So I, I think, think maybe... that you've got very good plantain oil there. Okay. <laughs> good. Um, what about the comfrey? Um, I'm kind of getting like a. Comfrey is know. proteinaceous. And so uh-huh. what people do to avoid that rotten comfrey smell is to make a comfrey oil but only let it sit for three weeks and then to harvest fresh comfrey, throw out the original comfrey and put the oil that you have over the fresh comfrey for the next three weeks and then you don't get that rotten comfrey smell. Ah, okay. Yeah, I think I'm definitely getting that smell right now. (laughs) Um, And it's different than the plantain smell. It is. The plantain smell is strong, but it's not rotten. Right. Yep. Whereas the comfrey smell is rotten. Right. That's how I'm, yeah. Yeah. And And you definitely wouldn't use it then if it gets to that point? Oils are used externally. Mm hmm. So I tend to use them. People have, you know, seen me open a jar of oil pick up the mold growing on it, drop it in the trash, and use the oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to make the tallow balm with it. Um, and I just don't know. I mean, tallow itself is already kind of, you know, a little funky to be uh, wearing around. <laughs> so exactly. To add this, so to add this to it, I don't know. I think I might want to start over. Um, well, y- Usually you don't add oil to tallow. Usually if you're going to make a tallow balm, you do the plant in the tallow by warming and liquefying the tallow and putting the plant into it. Okay. Um, And you let them sit together warm anywhere from five days to six weeks. Okay. Great. Um, I'd have to keep it warm in order for the infusion process to happen. Yes, because the tallow is solid at room right. temperature. Yeah. Mm, so where can I put it? That's the question. <laughs> I don't have an old pilot light uh, oven or anything. So. Um, Crock pot. Yeah. Uh huh. In a in a thing called a cooler, but it could be a heater if you put it in with a jug of hot water. Right. Yep. Right? It's called the cooler, yeah, sure. but that's cause, it's because we put ice in it. I use my cooler mm-hmm. to make yogurt, which means I'm using mm-hmm. it as a heater, right? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I've used it before for, like, curing sweet potatoes in that way, you know? They're convenient, those styrofoam boxes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, that gives me some, some ideas and uh, at least a way to avoid... Uh, smelly comfrey oil so i appreciate that you're welcome because um, it really does smell bad yeah um i have one more quick question if you have the time um 
I um, have heard I've heard your your opinions on essential oils many times on this show, and um, I'm just curious when you see on a label, like for example, toothpaste label, it says peppermint oil. Um, is that necessarily essential oil, or could that be different? Is there a difference between just peppermint oil and peppermint essential oil? Is my question. There is no difference of any kind. Okay. All right. Got it. Thanks for your call. Green blessings. Yeah, thanks so much. Good night. And it's my pleasure to welcome Sarah Wu to the show. Sarah is a passionate educational curator, a facilitator and mentor dedicated to adult learners of all backgrounds. She is a representative for Mother Nature, and she both writes and teaches about deep ecology, therapeutic ecology, and whole systems design, especially through the lenses of herbalism and permaculture. Sarah Wu has spent 18 years studying the science, art, and craft of planetary eclectic herbal medicine, and she has a foundation in traditional Chinese medicine, as well as the Western wise woman tradition. She has 25, 75-plus hour permaculture design courses in her portfolio. I'm going to have to ask her what that means because I don't really understand it. Uh, Sarah teaches full-length and specialized permaculture courses and workshops tailored to community involvement, event production, and holistic Sarah is the co-founder of Envision Festival, an annual arts, music, education, and movement festival in Uvita, Costa Rica, where she curates the educational experiences as well as the Village Witches Herbal Elixir Bar, Sacred Spaces, Healing Sanctuary, Herbal First Aid Clinic. I'm not sure if that's one place or four places. She is the founder and producer of Medicines from the Edge, a tropical herbal convergence dedicated to bridging the eclectic healing traditions of Latin America and the educational curator at the Punta Mona Center for Regenerative Design and Botanical Studies, Manzanillo, Limon, Costa Rica. Sarah studied formally with David Winston and has had the opportunity to work with Seven Song at the Omatipi Nicaragua Natural Doctors International Clinic, as well as having attended and presented at the New England Women's Herbal Conference and the International Herbal Symposium. Sarah is a contributor to Rosemary Gladstar's online course and has written for various herbal publications. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Well, it's, can you hear me? Am I here? We can. Yes, we hear you very well. Oh, perfect. It's so funny hearing it being read out loud. <laughs> How are you? Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, so glad to have you guys. It's been uh, too long since I've uh, been close enough to give you a hug. I hope that I will remedy I that sometime soon. You're certainly one of my favorite people. And this is what you wrote <laughs> to me. You wrote to me, um, I killed for the first time, with intention, to eat. I have experienced death. I've held small animals in my hands, bats, wild birds, wild rabbits, cats, a human, insects, 
go with the goddess is the blessing they all receive. I, I grew up with a hunter, father. I knew that life fed on life as I watched the animal's skin peeled back from its body, exposing the fascia and the organs and the, the blood that my dog lapped up. But I also ate meat that was served to me in a sliced deli roll, an encased package of pink, no face, no name, nothing besides a label. Do all of us have blood on our hands? Yes, all of us. To say that veganism is for nature is absolutely outside our essence. Plants and animals, fungi and soil, all are living, vital, one in the heart of the goddess. There are no higher or lower life forms. Our anthropocentrism has dehumanized us into thinking that we are something besides food. Eating meat is not out of alignment with nature. Monoculture enslaved living organisms in factory farms shipped around the world. Stamped paleo-vegan gluten-free is. If we ate with the wild, we would know the blood on our hands, whether it is red, green, or purple. All eating is a transference of the vital life force from one being to another. I wildcraft. I've killed. I've purchased. I've looked the other way. I've felt the heartbeat. I have disemboweled. I've interred. I've washed my blade. I've salted my plate with tears. I want to challenge people to return to the source of their food, to eat soil, to drink from the earth, to get off their religious high horses and dietary dogmas. To know that we will all be food and that the soil won't discriminate. Mm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> How did you come to this? Oh, you know, it's so much. You know, when you're reading my biography and you're talking about the, you know, the 75-hour permaculture design course, you know, so I teach permaculture. And it's, you know, I'm an herbalist first, so I started teaching permaculture, studying and living, working, teaching, breathing permaculture about 10 years ago. And, um, you know, it's about, it's about appropriateness, right? Like what's happening in the bioregion around you. It's about relationships. And for me, a lot of my, my teachings, my lifestyle, my social interactions, I try to mirror things around, around the forest. Right, and like the perfection of forests and the niche that we all fill at different times, and and food is one of the kind of key parts of like our permaculture is how it developed as a, a philosophy. You know, it started in the '60s, giving a language to something actually very old, um, a new language maybe to something very old. We we say in permaculture often that we look to the past to design for the future, but food systems in particular in our human settlements is one of the themes that like, we talk about the most, um, you know, from food forests to regenerative, um, you know, annual agriculture to bringing animals into the ecosystem in a regenerative way. And so, you know, for me, um, as I started kind of venturing down my, my path, you know, when I was like 18, 19 years old, and getting into environmentalism, it was like the first thing I thought was like, oh, I should be a vegetarian if I'm going to be an environmentalist. And with the appropriateness for my body, it didn't work. You know, um, I knew how to food combine. I was studying nutrition. I like understand primary metabolites and the needs that we have for our bodies to function. But 
it wasn't working for me. And so it really kind of started to stick out that like dietary dogma doesn't always serve our best health. And, um, you know, and then going from there and, you know, being raised by a dad who's a hunter, I did have this like really distinct relationship between knowing that my food was a living, breathing animal at one time. And a lot of people don't have that. There, there's this disconnection from a food source, whether it's from where the animal comes from or where it's from your tomato comes from or where it's from your quinoa comes from or whatever it is. It's like things come in packages. They're disemboweled. They're disconnected. You know, it's like you buy a cutlet, you buy a nugget, you buy a hot dog, you buy, you know, canned tomato. And, but there, there isn't that connection to soil and there isn't that connection to the living force of this, this being, you know, that, that is feeding. Did we lose me or did we lose Sarah? You're still here. Uh, it says Sarah's still connected. Maybe she'll come back. Oop, I hope so. That was interesting what she was saying. Come back, Sarah. Come back. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> All right. It looks like she's probably going to call back in. Her her phone just dropped, so... So she'll call us back. Good, 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 good. Yeah. Calling from Costa Rica. So. Yeah. There she is. I'm back. I was just going off. I don't know where I got dropped. (laughs) What was the last Um, thing I heard? Talking about about that, um, that as an environmentalist, you felt that you were supposed to be a vegetarian. But it didn't work oh for you, God. even though you knew how to do it and how to do it well and how to do it in a healthy way. Nonetheless, it didn't produce a healthy body for you. Exactly. And so, you know, that really led me back into questioning, like, what what is my choice for food? And, you know, I really – I had the fortunate, um, you know, like, offering to me by my dad being a hunter and that, like, I knew that – my meat came from a living being, you know, like I, a lot of people have such a disconnect from the soil, such a disconnect from animals that their food are breasts, their cutlets, their fingers, their fillets, they're canned, they're packaged. And the, that right there, like it, it takes us, a, it, it puts us in this place at the top of the food chain, which isn't true. You know what I mean? Because it's like, we're living in, and you know, this because you live with the wild too, in many ways, like, we're not at the top, you know, we're somewhere in between like dolphins and fungi, I think. And, um, and so for me, you know, like, especially recently, like with the Amazon fires burning and people getting really upset about monoculture and animal agriculture, I think that there, we have this tendency to demonize things, you know, we like to demonize soy, we like to demonize cows, we like to demonize dairy. And it's like, it's just out of balance, you know, and, in the permaculture movement, um, you know, regenerative animal agriculture is, um, it's, it's, we're trying to defend it because, you know, we see animals as an integral part of the system, you know, whether they're herding animals or fowl, you know, and really working with like, what are their waste products? Because in the forest, nothing goes to waste, right? Like everything is nutrients that are continuously being cycled. And so we try to mimic, 
the process of the forest that way and how we're cycling nutrients through. And that includes, you know, animal bone, animal blood, animal manures in small, smaller amounts. It's not like this huge monocrop. And so, you know, like seeing all this and people liking to, you know, it's like we love a panacea and we love a scapegoat. And so it's like people wanting to blame cows for it for, you know, environmental devastation when it's really, it's monoculture, which is the, uh, the key to uh, one of the things that's causing environmental devastation, you know, that we're, we're pulling things out from their natural systems. And so I really want to encourage people to consider, you know, like their, their sources of food in general, you know, and to say, you know, like, I don't need to ask for forgiveness. I don't need to, I don't have blood on my hands because I'm a vegan. It's like, well, what about the people that are maybe suffering? down that the supply chain for you to have you know whatever your imported foods are that are coming from from long distances you know and not even taking into consideration like the conditions of farm workers or the conditions of factory workers because that's blood on your hands you know and so i what i say to vegans is they're not allowed uh, organic food because it's grown with animal manure Right. It's just, it's it's kind of ridiculous, you know, and it's like, I I just wish more, I wish in schools and I wish in our new age, ultra righteous, like vegan communities would actually study ecology um, and and pay attention to like what's happening in the forest, what's happening in the meadows and how animals are this integral part of it, you know, and do that, they would have to accept that they are live and incarnated. Exactly. And in, and accepting that the plants and the mushrooms are live and incarnated as well, you know, and are sentient beings. And, and it comes into this thing of like, well, no, it's a lower life form. It's a higher life form. It's like, is that real? Is that true? Like, It sounds like a riff I once heard somebody life, do about you know, again, semi-precious like stones. And she said, do you think the stones think they're semi-precious? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. No, she says, Opal yeah. says, I'm precious too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, and, and I um, so I teach this course. It's called Permaculture for the Herbalist Path. And so it takes um, the standardized, globally recognized curriculum that we kind of internally mandate within the permaculture community of the permaculture design course. And I expand it into the body systems, into herbal therapeutics and all of that, and one of the options that our students have in the course is actually to do a chicken harvest and to kill an animal, to learn how to fully defeather it, disembowel it, butcher it, prepare it, cook it, eat it, and it's a um, it's a really really potent experience for a lot of people because they've never even had that choice or they've never even seen, you know, an animal in a farm situation. They've never, I mean, they maybe experience animals, especially the students that come to me have more experience in the wild, you know, um, but haven't actually like killed for their own consumption. And so it's an experience we, we offer to people, which is really potent, you know, and we have this talk about like, con- we call it conscious omnivory talk um, the night before and before they experience it. And we just really, I, I usually start it by talking about the story of the horn god and him you know, in the sacred marriage and him giving his life for for the spring, giving his life for the, the earth to regenerate itself. And um, we tell stories about, like, the Belshem Tov, who's, like, the ritual slaughterer. And, you know, in um, the Judaism, we talk about, like, 
what is it to take life and to take plant life and to take mushroom life and and it's really really beautiful and like people start sharing stories about death and their pets and all these different things that opens up you know this channel because I think a lot of it too people being so squeamish about eating animals is also the disconnection from from the rites of passage of death right it's like most people they go into, you know, hospice, they go into the hospital and they die alone. Animals die in slaughterhouses. Our plants are torn out of the ground and put into these like giant, you know, huge trucks and tractors and shipped off that, you know, people don't get to experience that anymore. And so they're very afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think you're quite right there, that there's a, a, mm-hmm. a disconnect that um, that has been chosen I've actually mm-hmm. had parents call me up and scream at me um, about how unhappy they are that their daughter has chosen to apprentice with me and how dare I have her going to the barn to milk goats. They they they, they see a better life for her. Mm. You know, and I, I'm sure yeah. that you have come across this in Costa Rica as well. Um people who have special heirloom crops and they would love to see on one hand they would love to see their children farm them and take care of them on the other hand they want their children to have office jobs mm-hmm. yeah exactly and that just pulls people further and further out you know and so and I, I know that's not for everybody right now like in the societies that we live in um, there's so much diversity and so many options for people but and how many generations would it take us to like rewild again you know, and we'd have to do this, do it by choice, and we may be forced into it, really, like, in these coming years. I mean, we, we don't know anything, like, what, what the planet's going to do in response to us. And so I think many of us are going to be forced um, into into a rewilding kind of state, you know. And when I talk to people, whether they're, like, long-term students or just, you know, shorter talks, and people are like, well, what can I do? It's like, you need to relearn the skills of knowing your food. And it's not just, not just the plants in our ecosystems, but it's also learning, you know, the edible and the medicinal plants. It's also learning the mushrooms and it's learning how to, to take a possible animal life if you need to, you know. And I really love, um, I don't know, you, you probably know the book, The Chalice and the Blade, Rianne Eisler, but you know, she yeah. says that we were, yeah, she says that we were gatherer hunters, not hunter-gatherers. You know, we gathered more than we hunted, but... <laughs> There was always like the the option and the necessity to hunt because it was also our tools, it was our clothing, it was our fat source for for candles, talking about tallow for our medicines. Like you know, there, there's so many different things in there, and so you know, I I really believe and encourage people to like get your hands dirty and bloody, <laughs> you know, just because it's. It's, it's a step towards sovereignty, um, true autonomy, away from a system that's crumbling around us. Any woman who chooses to do a 13-week live-in apprenticeship with me gives death. Mm. It dissipates in the, in the giving or? of death to either a mm-hmm. young goat or a rabbit. Mm. Wow. And if we, if we don't that's, have those, then we go yeah, to a neighboring awesome. farm where there's chickens. But yeah, I prefer with an eye, well, like a, I people also dissociate a lot around the chicken because it doesn't have a very human-looking eye. Mm. So the both the goat yeah, and the so rabbit, uh, yeah, um, I call it the hierarchy of the eyes. Mm. 
the more like our eyes, the eyes of something has, the higher in terms of life form we think it is, and the less like our eyes, the lower in terms of life form we think it is. It's you know it's our right because we try to like you know answer like put ourselves our personalities into it. We talk about that in our conscious omnivory too. Is like we anthropomorphize the suffering. You know we like take all all of our human ideas and we like to put them onto these animals and that also that dehumanizes the whole experience though because like these animals they they share this world with us but they're not us you know it's a different situation I thought it was really funny you know like meme like a, a graphic and it was like um about veganism it was like you know we we say that we're vegan because we're for nature and then it shows a picture of like a hawk like swallowing a mouse <laughs> it's like but this is nature and you know it's like and I said the soil doesn't discriminate and that is very true you know like the animals also don't discriminate because they're living by instinct they are also living by choice our domestic animals of course we have this greater responsibility for because we've taken them from the wild and we've changed them and have co-evolved with them for so long you know that like to set your chicken free into the wild is going to get killed like immediately you know so we do have this like responsibility for our farm animals um, yeah but if you set your tomato free you would die too yeah exactly exactly you know so it's you know i think like with people when i notice like the students and interns and stuff and we're in these programs whether it's like our apprenticeship we do like a medicine making apprenticeship or if it's like our you know permaculture for the herbalist path training which is like a month-long course um you know i think like giving people that option like i've had people who are vegetarian vegan like i need to do this i need to experience this i need not just like for the skill but also because they feel they feel that pull you know to to want to reconnect to this like very it's the primal part of ourselves, you know, that survival part of ourselves um, and really wanting to understand, like, how how do I live in nature? Like, when things aren't just, like, handed to you, you know, um, it's everything's handed to us so easily. It's going to a supermarket and just seeing, you know, these aisles, like, full of food that you have no responsibility for besides, like, how you choose to spend your money. Right. right. Mm-hmm. I often say that there's only one rule on this planet. I eat you and you eat me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we can see this rule enacted everywhere. As you say, the soil does not discriminate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say, oh, that's no. a lower life form. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. No. We no. are all equal in nature. And I think yeah. that's yeah. also somewhat disturbing to people because they like to think that they're more evolved. And well, that they, they have a you know, crown of creation and have some special place. And I love you're putting us between the mushrooms and the dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> that really puts us in our place. Somewhere in there. <laughs> Somewhere in there. Yeah. You know, this is so interesting uh, where we are right now because we have become this very dominant species on the planet it's like okay like we got to start checking ourselves like you know mother nature is calling us out and calling us in in a very potent way you know and so for the listeners out there um who haven't had these experiences with with food and you know and you're going to the supermarket and it's like the the convenience of it like to celebrate that as a part of our human genius that we've figured out (laughs) 
you know, how to make food easy because growing food is not easy. You know, it's, it's hard work. Um, but also really like, uh, um, you, you know, met, like try to you've met my granddaughter, Monica Jean. And when she was young, I was feeding some, learn. some mother goose to her and she could not uh-huh. understand old mother Hubbard went to her cupboard to get her poor uh-huh. dog a bone, and when she got there, the cupboard was bare, and so the poor dog uh-huh. had none, and she says to me, why doesn't she go to the store? Oh, sweet girl. <laughs> and to try to explain to her that there was a time yeah. when there weren't stores, and that if there was no food in the house, there was no food to be had, mm-hmm. was almost beyond her understanding. Mm-hmm. And that's modernization, you know, and it's also amazing, and that's kept people alive, and you know, our population's eight billion and growing because of those kinds of situations. And but it's that question of like, okay, but now what? You know, like what do we do now? It's like, it's like how we're responsible, you know, for these situations and for these people now who don't have survival skills at all, you know, and that's going to be a big part of it. May the not chaos need them, Sarah. Scenario. They actually may not need them. When I was working with um, Jean Houston in the development of human capacities, she wanted us Mm -hmm. to watch a movie one night about the Gaia hypothesis. And I went to her privately Mm -hmm. and I said, Jean, I know the Gaia hypothesis. Can I skip the movie? She said, no, I want you to go watch it. Grump, grump. So (laughs) off I went to watch the movie. It was a fairly good movie. And they presented the Gaia hypothesis very beautifully. But the reason I needed to watch that movie was that they told me what we do next. Now, they didn't know they were telling me what they what we do next, but it was pretty obvious to me. They talked about what happens when um, you get 10 billion atoms in a confined space-time. And what happens is that mm. the atoms begin to combine into molecules. Mm-hmm. Atoms, we haven't let, lost that level, but now we have a more complicated level. Similarly, if you take 10 billion molecules and put them in a confined space-time, they will merge together to form single-cell organisms. Mm-hmm. We still and have atoms, like molecules, but now we also have mm-hmm. cells in more complicated yeah. thing. If you take 10 billion cells and put them in a confined space-time, they will become multicellular organisms. Now, that's as far as the movie went, but the next step is pretty obvious to me, which is you take 10 billion multicellular organisms, i.e. people, and you put them Mm -hmm. in a confined space-time that is here on planet Earth, and you're going to have something that is about as comprehensible to us as a liver is to a paramecium. Hmm. Once we hit 10 billion, and possibly even before, we will, as a natural part of our existence, combine to make a more complicated form. Those of us who are staying close to nature, who are wilding and rewilding our In my story, the interstitial tissues. Mm. Mm -hmm. We are, in some way, the glue that holds these new changes together. Mm -hmm. Mm 
a beautiful analogy. So it's not something we have to do, and it's not something we have to worry about. And we know where it will take place. It will take place in the cities because that's where people are gathering. Mm-hmm. And those of us who have chosen to live outside the city are, again, choosing to be the interstitium. We're not being part of that change. We are going to hold mm-hmm. the, the sacred space. Mm-hmm. Right, and the adaptation will happen in the cities, and the species will change. Exactly. Mhm, mhm. It's a beautiful analogy. Yeah, and it gives me great hope, mm-hmm. and it helps me understand a lot of things that were kind of incomprehensible to me before about why anybody would be against abortion. Right. It, right, because hey, we need ten billion people. We have to hit that critical mark. We have to hit that. And I'm not saying that they're conscious of this at all. But right. that, that I can understand the yeah, under... Is, the, I can understand the Tao. I can understand where the Tao is flowing. <laughs> and uh, and how not to be in its way. Right? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. Exactly. To let it flow. So one of the things that I have found is that any time mm-hmm. that we remove from the diet any good whole food the health of the organism is going to suffer. Absolutely. One of my favorite quotes is Michael Pollan, where he says, eat food. <laughs> Vital food. Eat food. <laughs> right. Eat food. Eat food. <laughs> eat. Mostly vegetables. Yeah, mostly vegetables. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really considering for yourself, you know, when we talk about like appropriateness, <clears throat> like, what is the ratio of, of your fats to your proteins to your, your sugars, you know, and how is that perfect for your body? And, you know, folks love, love the dietary dogmas um, because it's also, you know, you find community within that. And you, you're like-minded people, you know, and you find some kind of a unity within your dietary dogma and everything. And so, you know, I always tell people, like, I'm a, when they ask me, like, well, what's your diet? It's always, like, such a hot question. I'm like, I'm a local for. Like, I want living food <laughs> close to home. <laughs> you know, it's like, I can. So, you know, and seeds. I continue to be very food. proud that about 20 years ago, I was thrown out of an organic conference by saying that, that local trumped organic. Oh. <laughs> it does. Nice. It does. It just I took them a couple it. of decades to understand what I was talking about. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Because organic. <laughs> Many I mean, you know, where I live, where I live, you can still go to a farmer and say, do you use any chemicals on this crop? And the farmer will look at you and say, don't, don't worry. I'm too poor to buy any chemicals. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All the chemicals are going to the giant monocrops and the organic monocrops as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I know, so, and, and you guys are starting to change local your season. CSA, if well. you don't want to have your own garden, that's a good way mm-hmm. to get more local and to um, get more of a hand in on what's happening. Mm-hmm. I in my um, and, in one of my correspondence courses, one of the projects is that I ask the student to give death to something, and I say it could be a mosquito, it could be a fly, you know, and I I would say that the people who don't graduate from that course, by and large, when I talk to them, the reason that they didn't graduate is they could, they could not bring themselves to consciously give death to anything. Mm. It's a profound experience. 
from the littlest to the biggest, and and it can and the giving of death could also be with the picking up a plant. Exactly. You know, for those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's all about the reverence and the acknowledgement of that life. And the green blood on your hands or the purple blood of the berries on your hands. Right. And mm-hmm. and it seems to me, Sarah, that we all want to be useful. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that the mushrooms want to be useful and the plants want to be useful and the animals want to be useful. And so I say to people, would you rather serve soup at a soup kitchen to homeless people or have a naked picture of yourself in a magazine with a staple in your navel? (laughs) Now, to date, 100% of the people I have asked this to have said serve soup. Uh And I say to them, that's because you like to be useful. And they say, yes. I say farm animals want to be useful too. Mm-hmm. I have never had a farm animal that resisted or countered becoming food. Mm-hmm. In fact, one day we were out by the rabbit cages giving death to some rabbits, and I looked up, and my cages are designed so that the does have a dark hidden place where they can go and kindle and, and give birth. And they usually won't, you know, bring them out until they're furred and their eyes are open. And this doe was bringing her hat, you know, her little baby bunnies out, lining them up in front of the cage to watch us giving death to the other rabbits. Wow. So they knew. And we don't do it in a way that is secret or that takes it away from the animals. We do it in front of the animals, and I've never seen an animal be nervous or skittish or upset about it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about the process, too. It's like if they're just being funneled through factories, it's a different thing when it's like that human to animal, that living being to living being contact, right? Right. And they feel that, like, our awareness of their lives, it's a whole different process. For them. Oh, great process. Sarah, mm-hmm. I can't believe mm-hmm. we've already been talking for half an hour. I'm I know. So, always feel so <laughs> fascinated when I'm talking to you. So you have so much to share. It is just wonderful. Please tell the listeners oh. where they can get in touch with you if they want more. Oh, thank you. So I have a website. It's villagewitch.org. You can go there. You can also find I have a really cool program where we teach um, herbal first aid. Um, so it's a resilience training and learning how to set up um, relief clinics. And so that's through Envision Festival. We've got training, and that's envisionfestival.com. So you can go either to either one of those websites, and you can find the different courses and educational opportunities that we're offering in permaculture as well as in um, herbal acute care and first aid. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. I could keep on talking to you for forever. Ever, but they're going to shut us down. So I'm going to ask you the final question. What do you want to leave in the hearts and the minds of everyone listening to you tonight, Sarah Wu? Oh, in the hearts and minds of everyone listening, I just want you to know that you have the infinite capacity for radical self-reliance. And what that means is that you, you can know exactly who you are, what niche you feel, fill in the forest of our human existence within this world. 
So figure out your niche. And it's okay if you're a canopy tree. It's okay if you're mycelium. It's okay if you're a vine. It's okay if you're a rabbit, if you're a hawk. Like figure out who you are. And through that, you will be like the most active and the most in service to your community and to your society and to the bioregion around you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank, Thank you. you so much yeah, for aiding so and abetting me in my goal of restoring <laughs> herbal medicine as people's medicine. Your work is so vital to this effort. I really appreciate you and all that you do. And ditto, Rebecca. I appreciate you and what you do. And thank you to Justine and everyone listening. Mm. Hey, you're great too. Green blessings and good night <laughs> to everybody. Good night. Thank you. Green blessings, everyone. Good night. Good night.